holy name of Jesus. Amen. Who is in charge here? Who's running the show? As we begin a new church year, we look forward to and we anticipate and we indeed pray for the Lord's return uh, for his coming, his second advent. And as we pray and uh, anticipate a second advent, we also hear about his first advent, his first coming, particularly of his triumphal entry into Jerusalem on Palm Sunday. And Jerusalem is filled to the brim with pilgrims who are there for the Passover. Uh, Josephus tells us that there was something like two million people in Jerusalem, a city which normally had somewhere in the hundreds of thousands um, people coming from all over the world to celebrate Israel's liberation from slavery. And uh, Jerusalem, during this time of the Passover, is kind of like Alaska in the summertime, but worse. Um, they don't have the, the extra sunshine. But uh, if you're anything like me, uh, I, I had like, multiple people last summer asking me if I had extra vehicles around. And, you know, the truth is that I do know where lots of extra vehicles are living in this state, but most people coming here on their dream once-in-a-lifetime vacation are not going to want to drive those vehicles around uh, if they want to do things like, I don't know, go into reverse or use air conditioning, things like that. But, uh, but that's what Jerusalem is, though, but, but way worse than that uh, during, during this time. Uh, on, on this Palm Sunday. So you understand then that if you need something in Jerusalem, you are going to have to bring it yourself. Uh, it's not like you're just going to show up there and someone's going to have a, say, donkey and a colt waiting for you and then later on maybe have a place for you to eat the Passover. It doesn't really work like that. There's just too many people. So there's not a whole lot of extra stuff around. This is also why they have predatory money changers in the temple as well, because they know that there's people coming from all over the place, and they're not going to be bringing their own sacrifices, right? I mean, I don't know how on earth you're supposed to bring a, a goat all the way from Pamphylia to Jerusalem. If you have hints, I'd love to know, but, but, but I don't know. And so you have these people waiting on the people in the temple, and they say, well, uh, we can take advantage of the situation here get a few extra shekels in our pocket and Jesus goes and says uh, no we're not going to do that and flips over their their tables and kicks them out of the temple and then he starts to teach and to heal in the temple uh, his house is not only for people have who have money although they are welcome as well but it's for all people um, and so it seems to me that it is kind of insanity that Jesus tells two of his disciples, then he says, well, um, just go into the village and untie the donkey. And uh, it, was, it was like, just, you know, walk through the parking lot and see which doors open and if you can make it work. And then if they, they ask you what's going on, say, oh yeah, the Lord needs it. And then they'll just say, oh, okay, we'll go for it. Uh, but that is exactly what happens. It's amazing. Uh, and it's not just one, but it is two beasts of burden. So 
himself, they go and they say, well, the Lord needs them. And they simply hand over the keys. At this point, we should know to trust Jesus. We should know when Jesus says to do something, you should do it. At the wedding at Cana, when the wine has run out and it looks like the party is going to have to stop and everyone's just going to have to go home before anyone wanted to go home, Mary says, do what Jesus says. And the problem is solved. And all of a sudden, there's uh, gallons and gallons of wine and the party can continue. Problem solved, on with the festivities. When Jesus says you should feed all these people, these thousands of people who don't have anything to eat, well, you should listen to him. They find a boy with a little bit of fish and a couple loaves of bread, and they feed all the people. You should trust Jesus. He knows what he is doing even when it seems nearly impossible that it could happen. Jesus, twice then during Holy Week, he sends the disciples to a seemingly random person to ask them for something pretty big. First, the donkey and the colt. Go untie them, the Lord needs them. Second, He tells the disciples to go into the city and to find someone and say, uh, yeah, the Lord's going to come and he's going to need to use your house to eat the Passover meal. Now, you would have to make up these plans many months in advance. You'd have to have contracts in place. You don't just walk into Jerusalem and expect to find a mode of transportation and a place to eat the Passover. You have to plan these things. Now, I kind of think that Jesus did have these things planned and that they're probably not just totally random people. But the disciples didn't know. He didn't say, now I've, I've set this up. No. He just says, go and do it. Whatever the case may be, Jesus is in complete control of the events in the last week of his life when in only a few days... He'll be nailed to a cross and he will appear to be completely powerless and the weakest human being on the face of the earth. What can a man do on a cross except suffer? Crucifixion robs you of your life in a way that nothing else really does. And it looks like Jesus on the cross has become weak. It looks like maybe he lost, and he lost control. And then he is taken down from the cross, and his lifeless body is cradled by his mother, Mary. Taken and buried by Joseph of Arimathea, stone rolled across the mouth of the tomb, sealed shut and guarded by soldiers. Where's your God now? I heard there's a new variant. Is it ever going to end? Have we just lost control? Inflation is what? The price of gas, the continuing moral decay of a society that 
sanctifies and glorifies the indulgence of the flesh. On top of that, you have people who don't do what they say they are going to do when you join this congregation. You actually say you're going to stick with us even when things get bad. And yet, I don't know where half of us are. When you're confirmed, you say you're going to stick with this until death. And yet, every pastor knows this is the fastest way to eject people from the congregation. And how many people have been baptized at this very font, clothed with the Christ, brought into this fellowship, and we all say, Amen, we welcome you in the name of the Lord. And then, poof, they're gone, never see them again. Now, I'm not complaining about my personal life as a pastor here, as if it was any worse than yours, because you have it all too, don't you? Promises that have been broken, wedding vows that have just simply been ignored, children forsaking their fathers and mothers, all sorts of miserable things. We all have chaos, the world that is just spinning out of order, and, and that's out there. And then in here, your bodies, your bodies crooked and breaking down, rebelling against themselves, lives full of failed plans and dead dreams. And you can be left wondering, what is the point? You can understand then, I think, why it is appealing to shout Hosanna to the son of David. Because that guy, Jesus Christ, riding on the donkey and the colt, somehow I don't know how it works to ride two things at the same time, but it's not my problem. He's done it. It looks like he's someone who we can shout out to and say, Hosanna. And this is your twice yearly uh, quiz uh, or education moment. Hosanna is simply the Hebrew word for save us. It is a word of emergency. The ship is going down in Hosanna. You can do something about it. Even in the crowded chaos of Jerusalem, he finds a donkey and an open room. Jesus is not worried. He never is. And Jesus is not left trembling before your disordered lives. No. He's not there in the street of Jerusalem wondering what he's going to do next or if any of it's going to work. He sweats blood in the garden, praying that there might be some other way, but there's not. And so he goes like a lamb led to the slaughter, innocent, calm, and defenseless. The one who walked upon the waters, the one who commanded water into wine, the one who defied Satan, the one who healed the sick and who is anointed, the one who raised the dead. He lays down his life. No one takes it from him. He gives it freely. He knows what he is doing, even in Jerusalem and even today. As hard as that may be to believe. It is foolishness to the world, but he knows what he is doing. He knew then and he knows now. The cross and death is only the portal to resurrection and to new life. 
Your baptism is only the beginning of a new life as much as Adam's first breath was a gift to him by Christ. And words of forgiveness are the clarion call of a new world, a world that is to come. Christ Jesus coming to you even now through his very words. Spoken by you, his soldiers, in a language that is unknown to this dying and chaotic world. A world that does not think that forgiveness is possible. It's certainly not wise. So you should go and try and forgive the unforgivable. And you must forgive. Because you can't forget. And yes... This new world comes to you. The kingdom of God coming down to earth. It comes into being and is manifested here at the altar of the lamb. That lamb that is slain. The disciples did as Jesus directed them. They did what Jesus said to do. They obeyed him. Why can't we just do what he says? Jesus says, do not worry. And our answer to that is to find all the reasons why we probably should be worrying. Jesus says to love one another. And we are quick to find reasons why some people don't need to be loved. We heard, oh, oh no one anything but love. Hmm. Jesus says, why do you call me Lord and not do what I say? Listen to him and do what he says. Eat and drink my body and my blood, which is poured out for you for the forgiveness of all your sins. And even if we do not know if this is going to work out because of this thing or that thing that we are worried about, he calls you. You, his disciples, and he tells you, do this in remembrance of me. Do this. The disciples did as he directed them. They just did it. I'm kind of obsessed at the moment with this Why don't we just do what Jesus says? Whatever it is. Why won't we forgive? Or why won't we be devoted to his word, which gives life? Why won't we insist on more frequent communion? It happens sometimes that people feel like they are bothering me when they call me for like pastoral sorts of things. Some people feel like they're bothering me if they have to call me and ask me to bring them communion. They're bothering me if, if they're from out of town and they, and they say, would we be able to come by and have the Lord's Supper today? Nothing could be further from the truth. That's why I'm here to give the life-giving body and blood of Jesus Christ. Here's the deal. The devil wants you to think 
that it is a bother for you to ask your pastor to be a pastor. And the devil comes to you and he says, oh, no, he's too busy. He's got all these sorts of things to do. He's so important, which I am. I'm the cover of the many publications at the moment. You all know that, though. Not for much longer, don't worry. I will fade into obscurity very soon. But it's absolute nonsense that we could be too busy for the Lord's Supper. Jesus' disciples do what he says. Let us be the church and the people who do what Jesus says to do. And so if you are alone then, if you do what he says and no one else does, who cares? Hey, what is the alternative here? You're going to follow the dead world into the grave that it is preparing for you? Or do you want to follow the one who finds a donkey in a crowded city and finds an empty upper, upper room to have the, the Passover in? Do you want to follow the one who knows where to eat and knows how to have wine enough at a party? Do you want to follow one who is buried and yet who finds life? I do. Follow the one who was and who is to come. And he will find you and bring you with him. Amen. Come, Lord Jesus.